Welcome back to the Hall of Tyrannus podcast. I'm Eric here with Jim and Mark. How you guys doing today? Jim's doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good as well. So we're we're gonna kick off here. We're gonna be in Genesis 34, talking about some harsh justice, cruel justice, reasonable justice. How would you guys characterize this? I think it's just. You think it's just? Yeah. Yeah. Just like straight I mean. Up. I mean, it seems pretty legit to me. I don't think that this is how justice is to be dealt out. I think there's a different manner behind that, but yeah. I think from the perspective of God, that God dealt his justice out, but I think that we see a lot of revenge from the hearts of Simon and Levi. I don't think they went and said, you know what, something bad happened. We need to get the evidence, the witnesses, let's do the court. Correct. And, oh, you're guilty, therefore we're going to do it this way, and we're going to do it in a way that God would find just, but not proper means for justice. Yes. Yes. Hence the reason why, like, Superman's a vigilante, and even though people call Batman a vigilante, he's not, because he's being sent out by a commissioner. So, that idea, there was this was just taking justice into their own selves. And we're talking about Dina, the daughter of Leah here. In chapter 34. Yes, she was um, defiled by a... I I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. I'd like to fake it. The Hivite? Sure, yeah. That's what he was, the Hivite. Oh, Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land. That's verse 2 of 34. He seized her and lay with her. So this was not consensual. No. And so what, what happens is, when Jacob hears about it, Essentially, they are going to have all the men of all the men in their like little town, city, circumcised because he laid with Dina, and then Jacob's sons go and kill everyone. Yeah, which is beautiful. I mean, justice for all, but it's it's not. It's it's very wrong at the same time. Yeah, there's somewhere somewhere a balance between this guy deserves to die and how the process went. Because there was clearly deception and everything else. It was not from Jacob's sons. From Jacob's sons, yes. And Jacob failed also because you get this clear picture later in the law. The law clearly states that the Jewish people are supposed to stay with Jewish people. They're not supposed to marry outside of their faith. And clearly, it was established prior. You can see the whole reason that Jacob left his father in the first place to go meet. Rachel and Leah to go marry his cousins, which is weird enough in itself, but that's a whole nother conversation. But the point is, he was supposed to stay already within their people. And when Jacob comes into this situation, after what happens to his daughter, he just rolls over and was like, yeah, we should just all become one. And that there seems to be a problem there too. There's like a kind of a theme with Jacob being weak. Yes, which honestly, realistically, and I'm glad you said weak. Between the sin that we covered the last time and the deception and everything else and the weakness, I think that is where the beauty lies for the Christian. Because although we do not have a license to just go out and do as we please in regards to sin, and we are not, you know, we we in the Reformed camp, People think that we just think, oh, yeah, you know, doctrine's grace. We get to go out there and live like hell. It's not the case at all. But the thing is, is 
we do have a great understanding in regards to how much all of this relies on Christ. And Jacob, again, is, is a big picture in that. And in his weakness there, we are absolutely needing something that later becomes the term for solid rock in which we stand. Something bigger, better, stronger than us, which is Christ. Well, and I think in all scenarios here in this story, which is pathetic if you want to know the truth, when you look at all three players, Jacob, his sons, and Hamor, and Shechem, it's all about their perspective. Shechem wants Jacob's daughter as a wife. Levi and Simeon are basically avenging or showing revenge after the defile of their sister. And Jacob's response is, oh my, I'm living in this land. There's a bunch of people. I don't have many men. So how, how can you do this to me? Talking to his sons. But there's one question that hasn't been asked throughout the whole chapter. And that is, God, what do you want me to do in this situation from anybody? Mm-hmm. It's not there. God is not in any of this as far as their minds and their actions and their hearts. And now we have a mess. I would agree. I would agree that also seems should be evident that you know they're they're not looking on the counsel of God in this process. That his sons are going out and doing this. Not uh, even just his sons. Him, him Jacob and also. Yeah. Jacob's idea of oh let's just all live together and be merry and happy. I mean I don't know like the sin is committed against your daughter. How how else do you characterize the response? Because there's no way. This is permitted under the law, is it? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, this is before the law, actually, but... God's law was given to man simply to show how sinful we are. So often, people use it as a reflection of, look how good I am, and it's not. It's literally, look how wicked I am. And that should be the perspective we use with the law. This all existed prior. You got Job, which is one of the first recorded books that technically was written, and the man talks about not being lustful, you know? The man was a righteous and upright man, and when you when you go through it and you see his character, you, you see that what we would call human decency, realistically, is very self-evident in God's Word. You know, it doesn't take much to know that taking something from somebody, whether it's their life or it's their purity, is inappropriate. It doesn't take much to know that. We are evident in that. God's word screams it all through that he he bears witness to our conscience. Doesn't use those words, but we see it talk about, we have this understanding inside of us. So his word is written on our hearts from birth. So I don't think that the law would even make a difference in regards to that because it's already evident. Yeah, the law was in existence way before Moses wrote the well, it wasn't anything that, I guess my thing was, it wasn't anything that Jacob was following to a word, essentially. It hadn't been given to him in the form of anything written down. That didn't happen until long after he was dead. So, that, like you know, there was no tabernacle or anything like that before Moses came along. So it wasn't until after that that we had the established law of the Jewish people and all of that, right now we're just at the time of the patriarchs. So I guess that's my point, is that he's not following any kind of written law. Well, and we also have to keep in mind at the timing of the law. It wasn't like God just said, okay, well, it's not time to give the law. No. This is where God is getting ready to go into a covenant with the people. And that's when God gives the law. And he says, 
we're making a covenant. This is your part. And then I'm going to give you my part. And if you don't do this part, then this is what happens within the covenant that I have with you. So it's not just that the law is there. It's God saying, I am choosing a people. I am choosing you over the other nations for this intimacy with me, that I will be with you. And part of that covenant is you must follow these laws. And we saw how that worked out. <laughs> yeah, it worked out great. So I guess we've established, though, that I want to go forward here a little bit to what his sons do when they decide to go in and kill everybody. This wasn't a directive that they had from anyone. This is something they did on their own. So what is it that you guys think about that? That's uh, You were saying earlier, Mark, that it was definitely justified. In regards to a wicked, atrocious sin was committed, and we know by God's law and God's word that sin deserves death. And whether it was them, by the law, 100 years forward, picking up stones and stoning a person to death, or whether it was them waiting for after the circumcision, lo and behold, death is deserved for sin. The means in by which they took it on their own self is where the problem is, is at. I mean, list up men's words. They murdered those people. That was murder, clearly. And they deserve well, death for that. Anytime a person kills another person, that's murder. No. no. Well, there are certain circumstances that it is permitted. Well, it's um, permitted, but it's still murder. No, it's not murder. No, it's not murder. It's not, it's it's not, not murder. murder. There's killing and there's murder. Yes. Okay, all right. You can kill in battle, mm-hmm. and it's not murder. There's a hard issue that goes along with murder. Murder has thought process that either goes into it, whether it's short thought process, like say Jacob just went out and murdered this prince right afterwards, just as a knee-jerk reaction, that still would be murder because of what's going on inside of his heart. In war, if war is proper, you don't fight for what's ahead of you, which unless you're being directed by God, you typically fight from a defensive standpoint for what's behind you. And to kill is in the form of defense to protect what's behind you. Killing in regards to that is completely in the okay zone. That's why you have biblically, if someone breaks in your home at night and you kill them, it's okay. But if they break in your home to steal something in the daytime and you kill them, it's murder. Because the one, they're assuming you didn't have lights that you can turn on. They're assuming so much difference from that time frame to now. But back then, you couldn't tell what the intent of the person was in the middle of the night versus what they're doing in the day. Because clearly God's like, well, theft is wrong, but if somebody's stealing from you, it's better that they steal something than to be killed for stealing. That's not the the response there as God has it. So there's a difference. You know, you can be charged for murder if you kill somebody for trying to steal inside your home during the day versus night. So there's a big, clear thing that God has a difference. Right, and I believe in... Is it Leviticus where, where God says, you know, if two men are fighting and as they're fighting, one dies, they can find a... There's a lot of things in regards to that. Yes. There, for In regards to civil a law... A refuge In, in regards somewhere. to civil law, yes. There's... Say, no, hold on. I might have cut you just too short. I apologize. No, that, that if, if two men are fighting and someone dies during the fight, that that man can find refuge in a... Um, yeah, it's like you can go to a... Another sanctuary, city sanctuary that's nearby, city. a sanctuary city, yeah, and and you can seek refuge there. I don't know where that's at in Leviticus, but I know what you're talking about. 
and it allows them to basically be sheltered from those who would seek vengeance on him for the person he was fighting with having died. Right. Again, another instance where you're fighting someone, but you're it's not it's not like you take a knife out and purposely take his life. That wasn't the intent. So when we get back to murder, yes, it, it's all about the intent of taking someone's life. The heart behind it. Yes, the heart Which behind it. Which is the entire law rests on that right there. Yes. Which is, we can oversimplify that all day long, but so did Jesus. And that's where it should be, realistically, what is right and what is wrong. So yeah, in, in this instance, we see Simeon and Levi basically out of control, acting on vengeance. Well, my sinful nature, I'd be right there with them. Oh, so would I. Oh, I, I don't think there's I don't think any question. So would I. If I had a sister that this crime was committed against, and I had two brothers that were like, hey, grab your sword. We're about to handle this. I'd have been like, yeah. Yeah, we are. <laughs> I'd have been right there with them. No problem. I'd have been like, I got my sword on me already. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, here. I'm always carrying my sword. <laughs> you know, and I don't know in the culture, did they have a governing body that no, this that was heard the, time of the patriarchs. Was this, you know, did they have the the heads of the different tribes come together and make decisions upon those types of things? I, I don't. I, I literally do not see that that I can recall scripturally until we get to Moses, yeah, which was his father-in-law's suggestion. Which apparently, obviously, that that realm was in existence somewhere, but it had not been adapted into the Jewish newly. Israel Jewish culture, it was not there yet. Yeah, I think the time of the patriarchs was lawless, if you will. I mean, they were, they kind of ran their own stuff. They had their own households. And I mean, it was a household that, you know, it would be two houses that would fight against each other. I guess I would have a hard time with that because you do see references to Canaanite and, and Persites. So there had to have been something. I think there's a people of the land, though. Right. But, but to be part of those tribes, you would, I don't know if they were tribes. To bond them somehow, I would imagine. I don't know if they were tribes, though. Like, you had the land of the Hivites, whatever they were. But I don't I don't know that they had established governments. They clearly did, because this gentleman right here that did the atrocious deed there was a prince. Yeah, prince, but once again, I mean, that, that could be just like the prince of a household. I think uh, he was like Prince Ali Baba from If, if he was... I mean, how, how many people did they go and kill? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't recall that being stated. Well, I think in verse 32, I think we kind of get a little bit information from Jacob when he says, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and Perizzites, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. So yeah, he calls it his household. So there had to be some sort of, I guess, tribe. I just... I don't know. We don't have a lot of information about that. We do see groups mentioned as groups, not just individuals. See, even I have to go back and reread things. Even Jim. I mean, it's even Jim. It's even only me. 66 books. <laughs> it's not that much, really. In one regard, it's not. But when you <laughs> when you take it literal, and it's not just you know reading fantasy or whatever, you have to restore things differently. Of course, I can like give some pretty detailed stuff about Chronicles of Narnia, and that's that's not, you know, <laughs> truth. But, yeah. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia isn't bad, though, but to your point about the Bible being more than just a book, or more than just 66 books, 
it's interesting because reading the Bible, and tell me what you guys think, for the time that it was written, I don't think there's any other book in history that has compressed such important and accurate knowledge into such a small amount. I, you'd be hard-pressed to find a verse in the Bible that you could just pluck out and remove, and it wouldn't have significant impact. True, but you have... Okay, maybe a genealogy here. No, 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 no. But what you you can't (laughs) take out... No, no, you can't take those out either. The whole whole thing in that regards is the fact that you have Council of Nicaea, you've got all the different canons or whatnot, you know, like to say that I'm really savvy to all that, but the point is you've had multiple situations where they have taken all the information and said, what is the main point here, which is Jesus, and they say... What is relevant to this main point? Well, they... that's not exactly accurate. So the Council of Nicaea, especially, was actually formed because there were so many churches that were using this letter from Thomas or this writing that was supposedly done by Peter and all of these different sources. And so the council was formed to bring all of these things together and say, what do we know for a fact was written by an apostle or written by Paul or written by, you know, what do we know for sure is scripture? Because people were bringing up all of this like random stuff. They're like, I have the gospel of Mary. Here it is. This is how you are to be worshiping. And churches weren't sure. Do we follow this? Is this real? Where did this come from? And so the council was brought together to look at all these things. And basically someone would show up with like, yeah, I've got this one letter from Barnabas right here. Okay, do you have any copies? Well, no. This looks like you wrote it yesterday in your house. No, we can't accept this. This is brand new. How am I supposed to believe Barnabas wrote this? He died 250 years ago. You know, uh, that's probably not accurate year. But that was the purpose of those is to essentially build the canon and say, this is what we know is for real. This is what we know we have, that we have copied this over and over and over again. And Jack over here, the son of Bob, he showed up with the Gospel of Mary, Thomas, and somebody else, and they all seem to indicate that we should be giving him money. Yeah, we're not we're not going to use those. We don't have any other copies of them. We don't know where they came from. And so there was a major need to eliminate all that other stuff to prevent that from occurring more so. Where do you think I can get a hold of some of those Gospels for that money stuff? I need a new jet. <laughs> you need a new jet? You already have a jet? Well, it's a matchbox. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, also, though, the other thing about the Bible that I think we kind of overlook is that this is not meant for the world. This is meant for God's people. When this was put together, Christ put it together for his people. And it's not a, an instruction manual on how to live life. It is a love letter specifically from God to us as a father would write to his son or that's what the Bible is. Still impressive. I'm not oh, disagreeing with that. There's no question about Still that. Still impressive. Well, and that was my point, that for especially the time that it was written, there is no other work that has been done that matches it in intelligence, quality, we'll even say philosophy, all of that. No other writing even comes close to matching it. You look like the Old Testament stuff, you'd be hard-pressed to find something as in-depth and useful as Ecclesiastes, Job, Proverbs, Psalms, and many of the things you would find that you would say, oh yeah, look, this is just as useful as those, 
it's pulling from those. And those were written thousands of years ago. And so that's my point. It's just how amazing the scriptures are in that aspect. Well, let's just go through the fact that the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. And there's no contradiction. They tie together multiple authors. I mean, this is something that God put together. There's no question about it. 1,500 years. I mean, I've only been alive for 46 years, but, you know. And I can see from when I was a kid to now how much change there's been in society, what's acceptable and what's not. You have a book that's been written over 1,500 years, and it stayed consistent. First off, I don't know of any other piece of literature that can say that. Multiple authors. Yes, but you don't have the primary author being eternal. That's true. (laughs) So, although it was breathed through multiple authors... It changes the fact when you get to that point. And the internet says the Bible contradicts itself all the time. Just because people can't put one and one together, they think it contradicts. The Bible does not contradict itself. Just for our lack of understanding and knowledge in the Word is a whole other conversation, realistically. But mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't talk to those people online anymore. I do. I do. You have more patience than I do. The last time I talked to somebody online about the integrity of Scripture... They kept on bringing up passages from Genesis or Isaiah, all these different places like, see, God condones defiling women. God condones killing all these people. And I'm like, dude, you keep on bringing up all these things that are recorded in the Bible, and then you're saying that God says it's okay to do it. That's not what's happening at all. Yeah. The level of ignorance that I see. But that's just simply what it is. So... So, I mean, it does, I can't say it doesn't frustrate me at times, but the thing is, is it's, it's ignorance. And the problem is, is you still have that same ignorance inside the church, you know, people not understanding the difference between prescriptive and descriptive text. But I'm okay with that. You got whole I'm okay with that. Because when someone in the church has a problem, I can correct them. And then when they say, well, I don't think you're right. I can say, then you need to leave. Yeah. There's a whole lot of people You don't need to be here. You're clearly not a Christian. You're here talking about how they think the Holy Spirit's blue and they have gold dust raining down in their churches because that's helpful for any purpose of anything. There's whole sections of what is supposed to be the church that is misunderstanding everything about the Bible. And although we would classify them as cults, you know, because they are, the issue here is they also say that they're a church and they're having misunderstanding of that. So, I mean, I, I find that to be problematic. And Well, they're not Christians. Well, they're not. That's they're not, for sure. They're not. They uh, also found those books about where you're supposed to give them money, too. And, and that's fine, because pretty soon they're, they're not going to identify as Christian churches. They do. Pretty soon they won't be. Pretty soon here they won't be. They won't be pretty no. soon. Yes. And, and, you know, I have just as big of an issue of it coming from those who claim to be Christians in the church, as I do with an atheist saying that, because it does. it's okay to say, I've read this passage, and I don't fully understand what God's saying here, versus I can't tell you what a descriptive passage is versus a prescriptive Well, passage. I understand the issue, but I'm saying I'm okay with a Christian getting something wrong because then I can correct them. There's no, reasoning, there's no reasoning legit. with an ignorant atheist on the Bible. There's no reasoning with them. I have no reason to even speak with them on it. They've made their decision. They're only being trolls. I have no reason to talk to them. If someone says they are a Christian, that they believe the Bible, 
and they've got something wrong, and I correct them, and they refuse, I am all for kicking them out of the church. Kick them out right now. Kick them out and let them post some stupid Facebook post about how, oh my gosh, Christians are so mean. I can't believe this. They kicked me out of the church. Good. Get more fake people like you out of here. I'm totally okay with that. I think it is a great way for God to purge his church, his bride, of those who are fake, those who do not love him, those who need to go. There's a process there, and I want them to go identify with the people that they agree with. That's what I want them to do. I'm not disagreeing. I mean, realistically, we have scripture. You go into a town, you preach the gospel. If it's not received, when you walk out of the town, you dust off your feet. And I do see far too much, even in good churches, well-intending people spending a lot of time going back in and be like, come on, come on. And I get it. I mean, we should have this desire to see people saved, but to what end do we do that? And you can have a desire to see people saved, but you also need to move on. Yes, move on. Go go to the next person. Instead of spending hours and hours on this person who isn't truly in the faith and is wasting time. I'm not going to say wasting a seat. It's not the way to look at it. But what I'm trying to say is they're wasting a hard time that's put into serving the church and serving the community that could be better for the whole. It ends up being wasted. Well, we have to understand that we're not here for the earth. The earth is here for the bride. The earth is here to prepare the bride for the wedding feast. That's what the earth is here for. It's it's a tool that God uses to perfect his bride. That's what the world is here for. And so when we go out to evangelize, I am I am not going out to evangelize. My primary reason is not because I care about that person. My primary reason is God has asked me to do this and I must obey him because I love him. Now, it doesn't mean I don't care about the next person, but when I'm giving the gospel, the question isn't whether or not they're accepting it. The question in my mind is, am I presenting it the way that God wants me to present it? Am I saying the things that God wants me to say? That's where success is in evangelism. Now, if they're saved or not saved, that's between, I mean, that's a God thing. That's not a gym thing. And I think as a church, we have lost that perspective. We think we have to win an argument. That's what I see so much like on Facebook and Twitter. I can't say actually that. I used to see that on Facebook and Twitter because I've done shaking the dust from my feet on Facebook and Twitter. But I, I would see that. There would be pastors and Christians constantly trying to win an argument. And that's not going to work. I think what you're saying is exactly right. They're not actually presenting the gospel. They're presenting some argument for Christians being good people and you should be a Christian because reasons. And that's not the gospel at all. Jesus himself said, do not put your pearls before swine. There's a reason why Jesus said that. Which comes down to my <clears throat> next, next thing about the scriptures is I don't think we value God's word or the gift that he's given us enough as a church. And that we, we're not willing to say, you know what, you're not interested in any of this. That's fine. There's a movie theater over there. McDonald's is over there. Why don't you get a cup of coffee? Go do something else because this is not what you want. And I really, Sunday mornings for worship is my time to be with fellow believers to worship God, period. That's mine. And I'm not going to give that up. And I will fight for that because that's meant for me. That's a gift that God gave to us. That he, he really didn't have to. He could have said, well, you guys go out. You guys are an individual or whatnot and do your thing. But that's not what he did. He said to gather, to encourage. So the purity of the church, which looking at all the denominations right now, 
Tell me where the purity of the church ranks in what they're they're about. I don't understand the question. Where the purity like, of the church? Like, if we came together as elders, are we going to talk about the purity of the church? As far as denominations as that, go? Yeah. As far as leadership coming in and saying the purity of the church, the purity of God's people, making sure that they're fed, and making sure that those who are not sheep are out of... Now, there aren't any wolves in the flock. Right. Tell me where that no, is, the importance no, that, of that is located in the major denominations. There, it's not. They they emphasize the importance on attendance. They emphasize importance on giving. They emphasize importance on making people feel welcome, which I think is ridiculous. I don't care if you feel welcomed at all, because if you don't feel welcome, it's because you're not one of us. You know where I don't feel welcome? All kinds of places. Every government building. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, would, I, would have to, I would have to differ in that regards. We are called to be different. You look in John. They'll, they'll know us by our love. They'll know us by our love. Now, I'm not saying that that should be the thing that makes people feel outcasted. Seeing our love, seeing our unity should make them be like, this is weird. I can't dig this. So I want people to come in and be like, yeah, I feel like I'm connected here. I feel like I'm supposed to be part of this. If but, you're a Christian. Correct. And that's that's my point. That's my we try to modify the congregations, as I, I call them congregations, when we talk about like like the church we go to as a congregation. If our congregation was like, hey, we're gonna make sure that we hang specific banners outside or that we preach specific sermons to make the people in the community feel welcome, that's ridiculous. You're talking about liberal theology now though. But that's what they're doing. It's all about making people feel welcome. And to make people feel welcome, you have to conform to them. That's no longer being part of the church. You're now part of the world. I think that anybody who is not a Christian, like as a Christian, I should be able to walk into any congregation and feel welcome. Because I should know that they are Christians, they love Jesus, they love the church. That should be all there is to it as far as feeling welcome comes in. Anyone else comes in, I want them to feel uncomfortable because if they're not feeling uncomfortable, now that's not a Christian, they're not receiving the gospel. If you're not receiving the gospel, you're not going to feel uncomfortable. So I really want people to be uncomfortable when they come into the church. I really want people to be uncomfortable when they're around Christians because if they are feeling that way, I'm going to say there's an 85% chance they're receiving the gospel. If they're feeling comfortable, they're not receiving the gospel. And that whole garbage of, oh, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That's trash, man. It's not trash. It's just absolutely stupid. It's beyond stupid. Entire gospel is built <laughs> upon the words. If not words coming out verbally from us, it's the words in, in black and white and print. How does someone become a Christian? By hearing the word. Mm -hmm. By hearing the word of God. So you can't present the gospel without hearing the word of God. And hearing the word of God can be read just as well. There is a very ridiculous, silly man in Arizona who's a pastor who says that you have to literally audibly hear it. Even if you hear one verse, that will save you. But yeah, that dude's kind of silly. But point is, you can read the text. I met many of people who were reading a Bible and have God work through that process and changing them. But yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I, I hate I hate that. Well, here's the thing, and here's the reality, and I think this is something that the church needs to take a look at. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I mean, there's definitely a separation. Well, I think that basically sums it up, though, that there are always going to be these so-called churches that are not part of the bride. They're not part of the church. It's always going to be there. Oh, absolutely. And I guess the argument that I would make is the bride needs to stop treating them as one of their own. They need to call them out and say, no, you're not. Your fruit is not here. I've literally thought about sometimes going and standing in front of some heretical churches and being like, hey, I think you need to hear the real gospel. (laughs) Maybe that's something we'll do sometime. Is there any chance somehow somebody can literally take what we just got done talking about as the church is the bride, purified and right standing, and with bringing defiled people in and wrap it back all the way up from the beginning of the story of the conversation we had. I wish I was able to somehow wrap it up together, you know, because there's, there's somewhere there is a way that it intertwines. Absolutely. You're talking about with Jacob and with, with and Jacob's the, the daughter. Justice, well, know? and I think it, it does wrap back up into there because Jacob was trying to essentially intermingle his people with, those who weren't supposed to be part of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. those who were not in the fold. Improper if that's the means. Right way. Yeah, yeah, by yeah, yeah, absolutely by improper means. And so here we are. We're talking about the church trying to fit everyone in. It makes me mad. It makes me think of those stupid coexist stickers. You know, I, I I get the coexist thing in the context of yeah, I can live down the street from anyone who's a Muslim or anyone who's a a Hindu or Buddhist. We're atheists, and we're not going to be at war with each other. We're not going to try to kill each other. I get Until that. Jesus comes back. Jesus is going to handle that. We get to be a part of it. <laughs> Still got that sword yeah, on this, my hip. This episode is taking Spectator. a dark turn, man. Uh, <laughs> Still got that sword on my hip. So, but my, I guess my point is, though, that I understand the coexist aspect of we're a nation of many different religions and whatnot. That's fine. But this idea that coexist, what it really is, is that, oh, well, the right path for this person might be this way. And the right, path, you know, mm-hmm. oh, there's, there's one heaven and many roads to get there. And that's trash, man. I'm not accepting that. The church shouldn't accept that, but the church does try to accept that. They try to, you know, bring in whoever they but want. again, you said that's not the church. I think there's a problem even in, in some legitimate Christian churches that have allowed people onto their elder boards that aren't Christians. The rest of them might be being bullied into doing such things. I do think that's possible. I think some of them allow their sin to get in the way. Not, you know, they're not, they're, they're Christians, but they've allowed their sin to get in the way, their fear of man, their fear of the media, taking their words out of context or anything like that, or even just revealing that they are Christians. They have a fear of man, that they're going to be punished societally by who they are. And I, I think that that's a sin that they need to work on. And then you do have people like Joel Osteen, like Benny Hinn, that there's, they're not a Christian at all. Well, I'm looking at Jacob and his daughter, and he's basically thrown her under the bus. I mean, he's basically saying, oh, they did something to my daughter. Okay, well, we want to make them happy. Does that sound familiar? We want to make sure they're okay, even though that my daughter, who's part of my household, was defiled. So really what we need to take away of this ourselves is that we are not going to be like Jacob's sons and go out here and murder these people and not even kick them out in a murderous fashion. So we've got to figure out... How do we properly deal with those who are sneaking into the fold? And I think that's going to be a great subject for the next episode. What do you guys think? I'm down. I'm cool with that. All right. Excellent. That's what we'll talk about next time. Hope you guys decide to join us next time in the Hall of Tyrannus. Jim, you got any last words? Just glad I live in the world where Jesus is still on his throne.
Mark? I have nothing else to say. That's what you say every time. <laughs> it's true.